But I don't. I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is our mid-Wimbledon recap episode entitled, Nowhere to Hide. And why do we call it that? Um, remind me? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, well, the seeds on day one had nowhere to run, nowhere mm -hmm. to hide. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a song. Correct. Novak Djokovic is not finding any place to hide from these Gimmelstab questions that keep coming up. The ATP Players Council imploded on friday very shortly after we recorded i was kind of annoyed that this <laughs> that all this news happened right after we recorded well i mean it gave us something to talk about mm -hmm. on this episode turns out they had somewhere to run because oh, half the board left basically <laughs> half the council yeah. it uh it's not an exaggeration to say a lot of stuff has happened in the first week of wimbledon it's been yeah. an absolutely wild week and we probably say that a lot, but this time it's for real. I can't recall the last time a Grand Slam has had as many interesting press conferences. And I think part of that, and mm -hmm. kudos to Wimbledon, is how well, or I should say, how easily they've made those videos accessible to the public to watch. Yes. So probably annoying to journalists who are trying to use their quotes in stories but great for fans and great for the public because they're on YouTube now, they're on the app. Wimbledon, we were talking, has the best app at this point of all the Grand Slams. Not even close. Mm -hmm. the, the first thing that we'll start with is the seed carnage. Day one and day two, the round one. It, it was interesting because it fell pretty clearly along like next gen versus the old guard. And all the old folks, the senior citizens, Serena, Roger, Rafa, Djokovic, with the exception of Venus, made it through, and a bunch of these young guns were out. Naomi Osaka lasted, you know, a few hours in the tournament on day one. Alexander Zverev losing to Yuri Vesely, which we really should have called as a tricky match for him. Stefano Tsitsipas losing to Fabiano. Sabalenka out to Rybarakova, who made the semifinals here, I think, in 2016, taking out Coco Vandeweghe when she was, like, a serious... Heavy hitter. If you recall, Rybarakova was inducted to the Body Serve Hall of Fame, a fact that I had forgotten until somebody <laughs> reminded me this week. Yes. And now I almost feel bad about it because Vandeweghe has been injured for a long time now. Mm -hmm. And she's been out of the game for quite There's a bit. There's no cause and effect between that. We did not cause those injuries. At no. the time, the induction was warranted. Right. I'm just, now it's like, I'm not going to celebrate that now. That was then. Okay. Right. And you're trying to sleep better at night. I get that. <laughs> But deal with it. Right. Uh, Dominic Team lost to none other than Sam Query, who, as we said, beat Novak Djokovic in 2016, is always going to be dangerous on grass. But it was so unclear, like, where he was at. He, he too, had been out of the game for quite a long time. But he's back and into the round of 16. Garbinia Muguruza. Th now, this was a head-scratcher. Beatriz Haddad Maya beat her in the first round, and every time Muguruza loses now, it's when are you going to change your coach? Is the coach a problem? Well, Haddad Maya is no slouch. 
Right. I don't think for folks who follow tennis intently, I don't think they were terribly shocked by it. But I can see how it could, the the name recognition just isn't there mm-hmm. for Haddad Maya. But that was always going to be a tough one for, for Muguruza. And we know on the WTA, there are very few easy first round matches anymore. Actually, Muguruza faced her in the first round in Cincinnati the year she won. I remember that randomly. And Garbine beat her very easily. But Muguruza is not very far removed from winning Wimbledon only two years ago. And this quarter of death that we were talking about that had the potential to implode has uh, has not imploded, but it, it looks quite a bit easier than it did at the outset. Because the other big loss was Angelique Kerber, the defending champion. And that, w- amidst all the the chaos of week one, that sort of slipped by, uh, I mean, it was noticed, but it wasn't dwelled upon. Well, amidst the rubble, you know, the, mm. there's so much going on, so many seeds falling that it was less notable for that reason. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about it before. People don't rate Kerber. They don't. They really don't. Did you hear, I forget who the commentator was, who was, this This clip was making it... Was... it... Oh, well, I don't want to say because I'm not totally sure who it was. This clip was making the rounds where the commentator essentially eviscerated her game, <laughs> saying that she has all these holes and these are all of them. These are the 10 holes yes. in Kerber's game. She's like, she doesn't have a volley. She doesn't have an overhead. Da, 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 yet she still won three majors. It's like, um, okay. In this day and age, you don't have to have every single piece of your game firing at elite level. You don't. Let's not even get into the ATP in the 90s when you needed a serve in forehand, period. Those days are gone. But Angelique Kerber is a very, very good player. I thought that was a little harsh. Some would say great. Mm-hmm. Some, yeah. She's a Hall of Fame player at this point. And the, the thing the thing about Kerber that, that ticks me off when I, I see people going after her is the bottom line is she's a three-time slam champion. And in two of those slam finals, she beat the GOAT. Right. Like, you cannot, under any circumstance, take that away from her. I've seen pressed fans say that Serena's handed all these slams to all these girls, and she's made made all these players unnecessarily when she didn't have to. She just gave away trophies. Mm. But it's, it's so unfair, because we have seen players come out against Serena in Grand Slam finals and not play their game. You know, just be totally cowed by the situation. It's totally disingenuous because we also saw the level that Kerber brought to those two finals. Yes. You... It, she didn't, like, it wasn't accidental. No. The Wimbledon final last year, Serena absolutely did not bring her game. Correct. I don't think you could make that argument in the 20, what, 2016 Australian Open final. Mm-hmm. Like, Serena may not have played her best in that final, but she was there. Yes. That Australian Open and U.S. Open, no asterisks uh, on any of the three. But especially in 2016, like, she earned those titles. She lost to Lauren Davis, who, honestly, the last I heard of Lauren Davis, she was very nearly beating Simona Halep in the 2018 Australian Open. Remember that long, long match? Yes. Wozniacki almost lost to Fett that Mm -hmm. year early. Simona played... A 15-13 third set against Lauren Davis in 2018. Simona went on to be the runner-up to Caroline. And that match kind of like messed up Lauren's career for a little while. 
she really struggled for the next year and a half-ish. That match well, was the reason. It may not... Okay, so correlation is not causation, You're right? You're struggling with that today. <laughs> after, after that match, she has been playing a mix of WTA events. She's played challengers. She's played ITFs. Her ranking plummeted for a little while. But she, I mean... She played really, really well against Kerber and exploited the weaknesses, the the passiveness that you see against Angelique when she's not feeling super confident. Any other big-time upsets you want to talk about? Well, there's one that I don't want to talk about, mm-hmm. which is Venus Williams, the match that everybody was looking at. Venus Williams, Corey, Coco, Goff. I see the transition you did here. Mm-hmm. You, this is a very good Oh, good I'm, I'm working on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unlike that DJ last night at the club <laughs> we were at, there were some perplexing segues between songs. Were there not? Were there like segues the, or were they just playing well, entire songs? There, there were meant to be. Oh. <laughs> anyway. Let me tell you, we went to another club and one of the drag queens did this impeccable mashup of Lil' Kim and Mariah's A No-No. Like, that was spectacular. And then, when the Kim song dropped out, they mashed up the chorus of a no-no and no scrubs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, how, how had I not figured this out before? I, I had. That these songs could be transposed. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you had. I had, yes. <laughs> even An even better fix to me than Ed Sheeran's song. Which he had to give Candy Burris songwriting credit on. Oh my like, God. get your money, girl. Get it. Venus Williams lost to Coco Goff 6464 in the first round of Wimbledon. And uh, Venus, in that post match press conference, you could tell she was devastated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a defiant Venus in press that you've seen at times, not wanting to answer questions. It was a Venus who was struggling to get through. Her emotions, I thought. Mm, really? Well, maintain her steeliness. The match itself, Coco impressed from the jump. Here comes your butt. No, there's no butt. A lot of people like to compare Venus and Coco. There, there is sort of a, a resemblance just just by looking at them, right? But I don't think their games are all that similar. No. I see people have said maybe the physicality, like the way that they look when they're playing, and I I can see that, but. Coco plays with so much topspin, right? Yeah. Like, she plays with a lot more loop and spin. And Venus, man, Venus just hits flat as hell during that match. And because it was so flat, things were going into the net or going over the lines. Like, she was just really inconsistent from the ground, unfortunately. I have a more charitable take of that match toward Venus than damn near everybody I've seen. <laughs> I don't think anybody gave Coco enough credit mm. for that win. Okay, She got credit for actually winning the match and it gets wrapped up in this narrative of the the passing of the baton. Blah. Yeah, the changing of the, the Which is not, not... And then there's the whole I made you in a good way. Like, this is the legacy of the Williams sisters, right? Right. Which is far more pleasing to watch and participate in than some trite old narrative. Because we still do not know the full extent of what their legacy is within tennis. We're starting to see it Mm -hmm. more. Right. It sucks that this 
iteration of their legacy has taken Venus out of the tournament. But it's just crazy that they're still they're here yeah, to witness it. It's possible in ten years we could have ten black women in the top top fifty for the United States. Mm-hmm. It's possible. Mm-hmm. But when I say that I don't think Coco got enough credit, I don't think her actual game, the game that she played against Venus, got enough credit. Okay. People were talking about how Venus didn't play well, but I've always maintained that whenever a, a, a top player does not play well, it necessarily has to do with what's on the other side of the court. And part of that for me was Venus is not used to playing Coco. They never played before. You look at some of the balls that, that Coco hit off of her forehand, the incredible depth and spin that she got on her forehand side. Venus was shocked. Yeah. And mm. then there were times as well where she had mishits that went in that shocked her as well. She couldn't get any rhythm. Venus needs rhythm to be playing well from the baseline. And Coco was hitting slices giving her different sight levels on on her ground strokes. Mm-hmm. So she couldn't find one zone to hit through the ball. And on top of that, her serve was impregnable. That a 15-year-old can serve like that is outrageous. Yeah. And you actually, you saw that through qualifying. Her serve stats were excellent. She can uh, she can hit some double faults. Like those, those are in there. But her first serve percentage, like points one on first serve, was crazy throughout qualifying. And on top of that... She was not missing anything. I don't even think she had double-digit unforced errors against Venus in that first row match. Her error count in the first two matches was extremely low. So if you're going to be serving that well, not making any errors, and you're a new opponent for somebody, you're seeing them for the first time, and you're on grass, there's very little time and a very small window for you to make adjustments to turn the Titanic back around. (laughs) <laughs> who was that again amy grant okay and uh venus ran out of time that's what happened she saved mm-hmm. a few match points perhaps if she had gotten into a third set she might have been able to, to figure that out a bit more but full credit to coco goff for winning that match and then to think that she then took out ribarikova in the second round playing even better yeah wild And what we're seeing with Coco is an explosion of exposure for her with this tournament. I don't think I can recall a young player getting this much press for winning Mm -hmm. three matches. Mainstream press. Yeah, for winning three matches, Mm -hmm. really. And I've had so many people come up to me and ask me about Coco Goff. Really? Yeah. I hear people talking about her all the time. She's on the TV and people are just watching out of curiosity. Yeah. I mean, they put her match against Herzog on center court. Two unseeded players, one of them a qualifier. And in that third round match against Herzog, she looks like she's going down pretty easily. She's down 6-3-5-2, ends up saving two match points, comes back to win the second set in a tiebreak, and then wins 7-5 in the third. (laughs) To be able to do that (sighs) after what she had already done earlier in the week, it's, Mm -hmm. it's incredible. Yeah, that that match against Herzog was a slice fest. So many backhand slices, Coco mm-hmm. hitting forehand slices, moon balls, like anything to stay in points. She just handled grass court tennis so well. You're going to get bad bounces on slices. One of those match points that she saved, she hit like this backhand slice that was a really close to the line and sort of spun out of the court. Just like, oh, oh. 
all right, girl, you do that. Because an inch to the left, the match would have been over. And you, you talk about this a lot. It's a perfect illustration of when you generate all this confidence by winning easily and qualifying, you can port that into the main draw. And she's definitely done that. I mean, imagine the confidence you gain beating the five-time champ in the first round. I say this a lot. You, you mean in res- with respect to taking qualifiers for granted yes. in the first round? Yes, and say, okay. like, don't underestimate qualifying because they have their... Momentum. Exactly. We do want to caution over-hyping Coco. She's still only 15. She's still limited to the number of tournaments that she can play. Her ranking is still... As it is now, as it stands, I think she's just outside the top 150. She's got Simona Halep next. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's not wise to have expectations of her now to be going deep into main draw events, into regular tournaments. Right, right. Like if she were to leave this and go play a challenger at her next event and lose in the first round, that wouldn't be surprising. Yeah, so she... There's this age eligibility rule in the WTA rule book, which I'm sure you've heard about. As a 15-year-old, like in your, in the year that you're age 15, you can play 10 WTA tournaments, which uh, includes like WTA main draw tournaments or qualifying for tournaments or ITF events that award WTA points. Per Brett Haber from Tennis Channel, he said she's used all of her wild cards, which is three, and she can now play in seven more WTA tournaments for the, well, not the year, until March, actually. Because her 16th birthday is in March. So the eligibility rule goes up. She can play a few more tournaments the following year. But it's a way, you know, women's tennis especially has been plagued by young prodigies who burn out, who are pushed by sometimes abusive tennis parents. That's not a problem here, but there are safeguards in effect for a reason. Because it is really child labor like their kids one of the most absurd things i saw all week was this uh, discussion about whether or not this rule needs to be revisited like do y'all i don't understand why why should it be revisited it makes perfect sense and we have a long history of uh, examples as to why this rule was implemented in the first place the fact that coco may have well-adjusted parents or supportive parents or parents who appear to be doing things the right way whatever that is Mm. does not mean now that there aren't 10 other parents who are doing it the wrong way right these are still children 15 is very young i don't know if you remember when you were 15 but i had braces (laughs) (laughs) but for a 15 year old to go out on center court and compete as a professional in her field it's crazy but what's even crazier is to expect a 15-year-old to compete consistently on the world stage throughout the year. It's They're Grand Slam champions who can't compete consistently right. on a week-to-week right. basis. And uh, I hope, I really do hope that the hype does not impede her progress. Mm. Because on top of all this that's been happening, she's right in the middle of this celebrity whirlwind of praise. Oh my god. This is it's crazy. Amazing. The, the uh, Beyonce's mother, Miss, Miss Tina. Miss Nels. Tina, the the mother of two queens, as Coco said, <laughs> Michelle Obama, Kamala Harris, Joel Embiid was one of the first ones. Yeah, big I saw. big shock. 
that NBA players are out here supporting right. women's <laughs> women's sport, right? Like this Just is to make the ATP look bad. No, this is entirely on brand. It's a mm. totally different culture in the NBA. Yeah. Reese Witherspoon, but the one she was most excited about, Jaden Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jaden Smith has stands apparently. Because yeah. she is like a full-on stand. Yeah, she has she nine hoodies. Hype, bruh, bruh. Nine hoodies. One of the nine best things you <laughs> nine Jaden Smith hoodies. The the one of the best things that you'll see maybe even all year is Coco's Insta, her live Insta feed after Jaden Smith mm. had tweeted at her. Bruh, Jaden Smith posted me at Jaden Smith. <laughs> that. I think a lot of us felt the same way. Watching her made us feel very old and reminded us that she is a teenager. It put into she's, she's very much a kid. It put into perfect relief her actual age, mm. you know. And let's not get carried away with this. Like she is having a great time. She's enjoying the hell out of it as she should. But we need to not impose more on her yeah. than she's yeah, yeah. already going to be having to deal with by default owing to her success. Mm-hmm. Coco it was really the the biggest story of week one. And I don't want to harp on it too much, but the Williams legacy is real. And I don't know... You know, Serena and Venus have both been asked about her in press. Serena said she feels very proud of what Coco's doing. And they, they have to have some sense of what their their role is in the whole thing. But they're still out there competing against people who were inspired by them. So that creates a distance. But Tamani Carriol wrote something about how Coco Goff's confidence is allowed to exist because things that Venus Williams had to go through. Like that, that really struck me. Because you think back to that interview with Venus and this white male older interviewer was, was really prodding her. As a kid, she was like 15 years old says, why are you so confident? And Richard Williams stopped the interview. And for a lot of people, for a lot of white people, they probably didn't understand what was going on. You know, but Coco is, we need to allow her to have that space. And I feel, well, I don't need to protect her, but she needs to be protected because there are people out there who are saying, why, she should be more humble. We did see that. Yes. Trash. So, Nadal Curios. The most hyped match of the first week, a second round match. Mm-hmm. We talked about how, well, we talked in our preview episode as the I-90, as I-90 thudded through our audio. Mm-hmm. Uh, deep apologies about mm-hmm. that. We talked about how curious should he get through his first round match, which he almost didn't. Winning in five sets mm-hmm. would be up to the task to play Nadal in the second round. And we got a great match. Yeah, I think it was a very good match. I don't know if it was great. For a second round match, it was a great match. <laughs> well, okay? indeed. But the the matchup, no matter where it happens, is going to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. For some reason, well, I know the reason. Kyrgios doesn't like Nadal. Rafa doesn't like Nick either. Uncle Tony has run his mouth a few times about Nick. There have been some bad translations. Because uh, Uncle Tony used the word maleducado, which means something different in Spanish. And actually the same word exists in Italian. And it doesn't actually mean 
anything having to do with education. It's more like about manners. So like a, a disrespectful. That that's what he meant. It wasn't that he had a bad education. But Nick took offense and ran with that. And I don't blame him. Like I, I really don't blame him for taking offense to that because in a way it's not really any of Tony Nadal's business. But as you know, Nick is out here on No Challenges Remaining podcast talking about it, talking a lot of shit like in the the days before after the draw came out saying I'm going to be ready for this match. I'm so not interested in this. I'm so <laughs> not interested. Do you want to move it. on? Because the parties involved, Nadal and Kyrgios, we know what they think. It's been crystal clear based on what they said in press this week their stances on each other Mm -hmm. so that's that yeah rafa really spoke to my spirit when he said i'm too old i'm too old for this like i literally do not have an opinion on this drama ahead of the match i feel that rafa came with a a very clear game plan and he executed it well like he's he's played curious at wimbledon and lost before incredible in this match after they split the first two sets Nadal finishes him off in four by winning the first two tie breaks he's ever won against Kyrgios in their head-to-head career. Previously, Nick had won really? all five. Oh, and both were won with an early mini break mm-hmm. from Rafa. And uh, especially in the fourth set, Kyrgios had a few, uh, shall we say, mental lapses mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and gifted a couple of those points. Right. Nadal actually had a mental lapse in the second set, I would say. And he admitted that in press, that he found himself distracted. Nick was complaining about Rafa taking too long between points, between serves. You know, a, a common complaint. But as soon as the match became more competitive and Nick was really in it, the, the chattering kind of stopped. And that that's something maybe casual fans are into. But for me watching it, I was just like, can you just stop? Like... <laughs> because you sometimes you get the sense like it's hurting himself more than anyone else just this constant preoccupation like the need to chatter at all times no after the match in press rafa was asked about this was such a weird question because the dude is asking a question predicated on what his friend heard so he goes my friend who is argentinian heard <laughs> heard you say pendejo and hijo de puta and before he could even finish, <laughs> before he could even finish. A Spanish-speaking friend of mine said he was watching and he sort of lip-read you and thought you said pendejo and cuyo de puta at one point. Me? Yeah. But, but, but so, what? Sorry. False. False. Okay, that's fine. That's pendejo is Argentinian. Well, I'm Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. Hijo okay. de puta, I never said it. Okay. At all. Okay. But, but So, check the videos again before okay. saying that. Okay, no, this one. Okay. Well, that's, that's why I brought up. False. Unequivocally false. I think Rafa is wrong about pendejo being an Argentinian slang word. Don't Mexicans use it? Like constantly? I've never been to Mexico. <laughs> it was, it Don't know any Mexicans. But the question was so bizarre. And it was that sort of question was endemic. The press conference, I guess, was entertaining, but for me as like a sort of stuck up purist when it comes to journalism i found it kind of distasteful it wasn't so much distasteful as it was sloppy and lazy it was there how many questions 
Okay, so there's Rafa's conf- press conference, but Nick's press conference. Oh my god! It was opened with, "Do you think you were hurt because you were at the pub the night before?" And and that was like the tenor of so many of the questions were about the drama. How many people asked Nick about his tactics, about the match itself? And he actually had good observations about Nadal's game plan that he he shared unprompted. He wasn't actually asked a a good question about it, but he came out with it anyway. But to your point, when he was asked questions pertaining to tactics or something to do with the ins and outs of the match, he gave thoughtful responses. Mm-hmm. But so, when he did not like a question, when he felt it was salacious, he essentially clown question broed you. Right. <laughs> clown question bro. <laughs> Who was that? Uh, Bryce Harper. Harper. I mean, Nick likes it both ways, right? Like, he wants to be the Joker and wants to be a troll. In this sense, like in this situation, he lost. He was quite respectful to Rafa in press and wasn't in the mood to play the troll. But I was just disappointed and kind of grossed out by a lot of the questions that he was asked, by the fact that we're joking around about journalists taking selfies with him at the pub. Um, no, it was pointed out that it wasn't a selfie. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. It was just it was a, a picture. Photo. Is that journalism? Uh, no, I mean, all shade, all tea. But I am extremely judgmental about that kind of thing. Are you a journalist or are you a friend? Well, I'm, <laughs> the issue here is that right as Nick was being asked a question. He's like, ah, you, you were at the pub last night. Mm-hmm. And then like, cackle, cackle, laugh, laugh. And then I'm thinking, well, if I'm that uh, journalist, I'm running for the hills. I'm like, I don't want well, to be identified. Be yeah. But that said, quote, unquote, journalist then posted the picture of Kyrgios kissing her on the cheek wow. from the night before. So you that know, was a, that was one way to do it. That was some, a choice. Some members of the press have to obey different rules than others. Mm-hmm. That might get your press pass snatched at a smaller tournament. Anyway, I'm I'm a party pooper. I know. I get it. Miss Parmentier, she uh, caused a bit of kerfuffle this week <laughs> when she danced on Sharapova's grave. <laughs> it wasn't quite a sea walk. It was a moonwalk. Okay. Maria Sharapova, like there are a few things going on here. Sharapova had to retire from the match she happened to retire at five love in the third set so there was already a lot of criticism about why would you retire at that point you could have just served or whatever you could have just walked back and forth and taken your beating i didn't really see the end of that match so i'm not going to comment on it but someone did point out that other players when they're hurt have just stayed on court taken their whooping and gone home I don't think you have to, but I am. I do question retiring at five love, unless it was like an extreme acute injury that if you were extremely up. injured. Yeah, that was shade from you. From me? Yes, because Sharapova said that about you said someone ex- else. You said extreme. You were saying extreme. Yes, You're going that direction. That's I was a just, famous quote. I was just trying to be more succinct. <laughs> okay. So Sharapova retired. Typically, the opponent is quite respectful of a retirement. Parmentier said, My coach was promised that if I won, I would moonwalk on court. And I certainly did. It wasn't even a big moonwalk. No. I just I just can't be that wound up by it. Except Miss Sharapova 
was directed to a video of it <laughs> on Twitter and mm. quote tweeted saying, you know, I was just going to sit here eating my food. Well, I was going to go take a nap, but now I can't sleep. So I'm going to be vex. rehabbing furiously to get back. <laughs> I did. I did try to like put myself in the place of if this were Serena, if this were a player that I were a fan of and their opponent did that, how would I feel? You'd be and annoyed. I, and I get it. I get it. I'm not trying to be a hypocrite here. I understand the double standard. But there was so much happening in the first week. Who can who can even dwell on it? Mm-hmm. Is it potentially distasteful? Yeah. You're Parmentier. You're not like the greatest player in the world. But how many she's time? been out here for ever. For a long she's time. She's been knowing Maria for probably 15 years. Yeah, yeah. But you get your chance to play... Sharapova and you get to take her out at Wimbledon in the second round you get to collect third round prize money like this is not nothing for her right like she had this pre-arranged agreement with her coach and that's probably why the, the dance was a little bit truncated it wasn't a full-on right. moonwalk like had the match continued to six love yeah. and she had an actual winning moment it wouldn't have been distasteful yeah. right we it's, would it's see it it's one of those things where you could easily just say yo seriously is that really that that cute for you to do that as opposed <laughs> to like die bitch die you know right. like we have to go right. from two percent to 200 in no time yeah yeah some say zero to 60. how right. did i come up with that I, I said you have a problem with metaphors i just struggle to be uh bothered by this whole thing mm -hmm. fabio fognini in his match against tennis Sangren. Lord. By the way, we do have to blame Fabio for letting Tennis Sangren win three matches in a row. Minimum three matches. He's in the round of 16 in Wimbledon. Will face Sam Query. Again, kind of a lesser of two evils there. Well, I mean, there is definitely one bigger evil well, there, in that match. That's true. But in the Fabio match, they were out on one of the smaller courts and... Fabio was annoyed about a lot of people like wandering around and it was just kind of noisy and chaotic. Definitely get the the frustration there. He was sort of chattering to himself in Italian, talking about damned English. A bomb should explode on this court or on this club. And man, people are mad. And someone pointed out, of course, the umpire was Carlos Ramos, <laughs> <laughs> who is known to be an extreme. Have you heard of him? An extreme stickler for the rules. There are a lot of people out here who are like in the protect Carlos Ramos camp. Yes. Mm -hmm. That also intersects with other camps that shall remain nameless. <laughs> right. um, okay, this might be an unpopular opinion, but I'm also struggling to get mad about this. Yeah, same. Uh, I, obviously... I'm told, I'm told, you know, whenever somebody says, say, for example... A European goes and calls somebody the n-word like well in my country the n-word we use it to mean like painting the wall it's totally different <laughs> there's always some kind of yes. explanation for when a European says something that we in in this side of the world finds right you know terrible and totally unpolitically correct mm. right we always get explained what it really means yes and so what we're told this time is that it's a very common thing to be saying in Italy, and it doesn't mean anything. Right. I actually accept that in this situation. I do, as well. And I don't know, like, you might drag us for that, but I, I don't think it was a terrorist threat. I think that much is clear. It was certainly distasteful. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, the, as Ben Rothenberg pointed out, the All England Club was actually bombed during the World War. <laughs> yes, during the Blitz. 
it was weird. It was just weird. It was, you know, Fabio has not grown up. What, every time I criticize Fabio, people want to say, well, he has a kid now, so no, you listen, just need to understand he, he's, is, he might be different. He is a grade A all-time asshole. Like, we know this. Right. Like, this is, we're not right. trying to diminish his status. He's earned it. Yeah. But, like, uh, I understand his gripes in this instance. Mm-hmm. Like, he's won more matches than a lot of people on the ATP tour in the last 12 months. He, I feel like he's earned a spot outside of court Timbuktu. <laughs> Maybe they were punishing tennis. tennis. Who knows? Maybe. Oh, yeah. Before we get into this ATP mess, can we talk about how Stan Wawrinka is like a stone's throw away from posing for Playgirl? <laughs> <laughs> I just tweeted about this. Apparently he, he has and... become an Instagram baddie. Yeah, apparently he and Donna are through. They are. They're through and he's out here soliciting phone numbers, posing up by the pool with bubbly, like shirtless everywhere, uh-huh. wanting you to count his abs. Uh, I'm so ashamed. Why? Because I have always been attracted to him, and it's mm-hmm. gross. It's gross. It's gross because I won't. I won't get into it. But you're not opposed to this new era, is what you're exactly. saying. Exactly. Mm-hmm. He's a, a guilty pleasure of mine. It reads to me that he is trying to let Miss Vekic know what she's missing. Oh, that's gross. That's really gross. I mean, some might say. I mean, where it's welcome for you in the thirst department, some might find it. A bit desperate, and it exists in truth somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. And he, he is also like 35. Yeah. And has now become an Instagram thought yeah, in his mid-30s. He's living his best life <laughs> off the tennis court. Mm-hmm. You know who's not living their best lives? The ATV Players Council. That shit has got to suck. Can you imagine being stuck in one of those seven-hour meetings? Oh my god. A seven-hour meeting. The Friday before arguably the most important tournament of the year. Mm-hmm. There's so much to unwrap here. There's so much we don't know. There's so much that's coming into focus as to why we don't know things. Mm-hmm. And it's as or even more salacious than we could have imagined. <laughs> it's also, it's it's confusing. We know very little about the the content, like what goes on at Players Council meetings. Some information is leaked we don't know who's leaking it, but Novak Djokovic is annoyed that there's a leak on the council. We do know that four members resigned either possibly during or after the most recent Players' Council meeting. Robin Haza was the first one to, to come out publicly and saying that he was leaving the council. Valverdu left as he was the coaching the co- representative. Yeah. Stakowski, who was just reappointed to fill in a vacated spot in January, I think he left. Mm-hmm. And Jamie Murray yeah. left as well. And they all pretty much say, like, this is not working. There's nothing that we can do. Right. That they're kind of at an impasse. A few of them made some some insinuations that certain people were not out for the best interests of all of the players. Mm-hmm. And what was confusing to me is that Stakowski was always assumed to be on the Djokovic anti-Kermode wing of the council, and he resigned. What became a huge part of this story and where things started to unravel from the Djokovic side of side of the equation is when he was again blindsided in press by being asked about the situation. I guess he thought 
I don't know what he thought. How, but at this point, how are you blindsided? How are You're you not... surprised that you are being asked about Gimmelstab when you are meeting to fill his spot? That that was one of the things on the agenda. And uh, Wallace Simpson, he was well, the one... Weller Evans. <laughs> Weller Evans was the one who was appointed as the interim mm-hmm. board member through the end of the year over Nicholas Lepenti, right? Yeah. And interim because they couldn't come to a consensus. It was essentially the same split that they had in Australia, or sorry, in Indian Wells, which then they then delayed the vote to Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was asked about Gimmelstub, and here at Wimbledon, after all that's transpired, after the victim statements have been part of public record for months, he has positive things to say about Justin Gimmelstub and then cops to having never read the victim statements. It was it was a remarkable exchange, especially since this was available to everybody shortly after it happened. It, it's not happening behind closed doors. It's a press conference at a tournament that publishes the video of their conference soon after. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Simons from Inside Tennis was the journalist who was asking the questions. It was quite a long interaction. Mm-hmm. Kudos to him. He said some messed up wild things in the past, written some wild things that are not okay. A few, well, a few like weird questions. I know we talked about one pertaining to Serena. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this instance, he did a good job. Oh, he was prepared. He was calm. He he asked the correct probing questions. It was it was just so strange coming from Djokovic because he made very clear that he felt attacked. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he said he said it it seemed like he said out of nowhere, there is no reason for you to attack me. And that was in the midst of Simons explaining what a no contest plea means in California. And he wasn't saying like Oh, you're so stupid because you don't know what this means. We didn't know what that meant either. Like, we, you know, we had to do our research about that. And that's what Simons was saying. But it's no. reasonable to get that question when you offer a somewhat blanket statement still in support of Gimmelstab mm-hmm. when all this stuff is available. Right. Because we've heard Novak said, you know, it's still kind of winding its way through the courts and I'll wait. And Kevin said something similar that we just have to wait and see what happens. We have seen what happened. By Kevin, you mean Kevin Anderson. Yes. It was very disappointing what Kevin it Anderson was. said. And I I just wonder, what are you all waiting for? The criminal trial is... Well, it wasn't really a trial, but the criminal proceedings are done. They're over. The judge Gimlestub made a... Ex- pled no contest, right. which the judge went to great lengths for Gimmelstab to agree and accept that that was tantamount to a guilty plea. Yes, that's on the record. You can look it up. The judge went on to say, you cannot go forth and then represent this as something different, which Gimmelstab continues to do at every turn. And it's clear that that's what he's putting in these people's ear behind Mm -hmm. closed doors. And we got a letter from Justin Gillestab's lawyer after that first press conference with 
with Djokovic, mm. essentially saying we're surprised that his name is being brought up still as part of this whole process. And it, it went, it took steps to try and clear Gimelstab's yeah. name. It was it was bizarre. It's well, it's strange because I thought I thought the judge's instructions were very clear, and I would assume that a letter from a lawyer is seen legally as representing the defendant right mm -hmm. like just because Gimelstab himself didn't say those words it's representative of him yeah so fine i i can see how somebody would say well the victim statements are just that and we talked about this when this whole thing unfolded in real time that those weren't vetted sure. cross-examined mm -hmm. statements it's when you know the proceeding has been decided and the victim gets to say their piece so there may be inaccuracies in that but Gimmelstab doesn't get to contest those now. Well, he, he could if have. If he wanted to, he could have. Had, had he chosen to go to trial. Yeah. But he chose to plead no contest and to accept that he was guilty. In effect. Mm -hmm. For me, I, I don't want to assume what Novak knows or doesn't know. If he says he hasn't read them or he hasn't heard the contents of the statements, I will take him at his word. What I have to object to is... Well, how, like, after all this time, how do you not know? This is this is actually a friend of yours at this point. Someone you speak to on the phone. You've heard his side of the story. How have you not done a quick Google? It, it's just... Yeah, I mean, not only that, it's been I brought to his attention multiple times in press. I feel that he has a responsibility as the president of the Players' Council, a body which is voting to replace Gimmelstab to it's it's part of due diligence to take 10 minutes and read this stuff right hell listen to the body serve tennis podcast <laughs> we'll help you out but to get to this point now at wimbledon where it's supposed to be the wrapping up moment of this whole thing and to still be in the dark about all these various parts of the situation it's a dereliction of duty and it was mind-blowing to me right and also gimelstab flew to london during this tournament mm -hmm. Of course, journalists are going to ask about it, or they should. They're not just all out here to take selfies with Nikirios. They are here to ask important questions. How are you not better prepared? And I think Novak is a really smart guy. Like, that that's not the issue. He is super intelligent. So, uh, like, my personal, my gut instinct is not to believe the claims of ignorance. Because I know he's smart. See, I... I, I don't know if I agree mm. with that. I think that at every step of this situation, everybody involved seemed to be caught off guard that there was this much interest in what was going on, that it was still a thing, mm. that it was something that they sh would be getting asked about. I think that a lot of these folks thought that it was done with. Oh, yeah. And that it wouldn't be brought up again. Right. But, but, but you said, you know, Gimmelstab resigned from the ward. He was going to take some time. But here he is. I didn't say that. You said that. No, but that's what they are saying, okay. right? We have dealt with the problem. That was that was the messaging from the ATP. And here he is. In what capacity, we don't know. And the, the statements from, from Djokovic and Kevin Anderson read like PR fluff. Mm. You know, like trying to, trying to not deal with the actual question and just kind of like bat it away and think that that was going to be enough. When in fact... The time for that was six months ago. Right. Like, that would have been okay six months ago. Like, we expect more now. 
and to then expect for a much maligned working tennis press to not tackle that that issue is a bit it's 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 crazy mm. now so the next thing that we have to talk about and i want to make very clear that to avoid any legal problems for us we're not making the connection here but sports business um the publication sports business and the reporter frank dunn reports that the atp world tour is on the verge of signing this massive massive deal with img to sign away its betting streaming and data rights for one billion dollars the story explains that it was a no-bid contract, that they didn't seek out all the other company. I don't even know. Like, or to see if they could get a better offer, yes. a better bid. So it was a deal with IMG. They didn't accept any bids. It's for a billion dollars, supposedly. And it is imminent, according to this story. Mm-hmm. Justin Gimmelstab, who is repped by IMG, who we learned earlier this year got Max Eisenbud into the tennis agency business stream with IMG. Like, there's that long history of Gimmelstab with IMG, and all these players are with IMG as well. Players on the board are with IMG. Many, many players are with IMG. IMG also owns the Miami tournament. Mm-hmm. We talk, we've talked so much about conflicts of interest in tennis on this podcast, and it's it's important to remember that conflicts of interest in and of themselves are not necessarily corrupt, but they can create the conditions for corruption and at the very least create the appearance, right? So we're not saying that there is something untoward going on because we don't know. We simply Mm -hmm. do not know what has happened. But at the same time, we wondered why Gimmelstab was so indispensable to the board and the council and to tennis for nobody to be talking up against him when this whole thing was going on. Well, everybody was saying, well, let's wait and see, let's wait and see. Mm-hmm. Just how intertwined was Gimmelstab in the fabric of tennis? And we we suspect now one of the ways was a potential part of this deal brokering through the agency that reps him and is so intimately involved with so many facets of, of the, the, the ATP tour. Right. And we understand that Gimmelstab has a financial stake in the ATP itself. He owns a production company that does a lot of work for ATP Media. It's all, it's very intertwined. It's, and it's really difficult to do research on this sort of thing because ATP Media, for example, doesn't say, oh, here are the people who work here or here are the partners, <laughs> you know, like you have to piece these things together like a puzzle. So there are like a bunch of big players, apparently, in the betting streaming arena. And one of these companies are currently, one of these companies is currently preparing a formal complaint to the ATP on the grounds of a lack of competition. I don't, you know, I don't know the competition laws and enforcement in the United States. Or under what jurisdiction (laughs) it would be. Right. I know that in Canada, I could tell you some stories about the Competition Bureau objecting to certain deals and trades and all that sort of thing. In the U.S., I have no idea. Or France or wherever they're suing or complaining. I think it is becoming very, very clear that Gimmelstab is such such an insidious part of tennis that he is not going anywhere. 
And this this recession from the spotlight was always meant to be very, very temporary and possibly nominal. You know, there he may be working in some capacity behind the scenes. The bottom line is, how can you look at this deal in light of everything that we've suspected or come to know or are skeptical about and not feel like it doesn't necessarily pass the sniff test? That there's something there that we are not being Mm. told about that might not be on the up and up completely. But at the same time, if you are a member of the Players' Council and the ATP is about to secure a $1 billion contract, and you feel that you could divert some of that revenue to players, I can understand how you would feel like, well, this is my role, right? I don't care how this deal came about. If I can get some of this money into prize money or to challengers or whatever, this is what we have to do. I get that. What was really surprising to me is that Vashek Pospisil tweeted about basically that he was disgusted by the deal and this was the first that he'd heard of it oh which was even more confusing because again we're on the outside we assume Vashek is is on one side and other people are on the other and Uh, so this may be what when somebody like Djokovic says in in his defense all year like he doesn't like the leaks there's so much going on that people don't know about there may have been so much going on that even his colleagues on the council didn't know about. Right. You know, like so there really is probably a, a lot that we don't yes. know about. So it is dangerous to assume. But continue following the story because it's not done yet and there's more to be seen and heard. Mm-hmm. Okay, enough about ATP politics. There are a few odds and ends that we wanted to tie up. Moving on to more happy news. I wanted to talk about mixed doubles. Okay. Some We've got some goats playing mixed doubles. We have Serena announcing that she and Andy Murray were going to team up, which when I first heard it, I thought it was a joke. I couldn't believe it was real because it is so rare and unusual that you see a matchup of this this stature. And it was it was just crazy to watch. I don't even have that much substantive to say about it. It, <laughs> it was just a lot of fun we to just watch. Have to, we, I think we have to appreciate this moment. It's it, it's just crazy. And then Venus Williams is out here trying to rehab Francis Tiafoe's <laughs> image as a double square. Yes. So some of y'all dragged Francis so badly during Hopman Cup because he wasn't maybe the best partner for Serena, but he held his own the other day. He did a good job. He made some important volleys. He withstood. He, he a, played well. He withstood. A hit from Venus, square in the back. Oh my lord. She just whacked him with a forehand in the back. And it looked like those two were having fun. He played... uh, It was... It's just such a joy to watch. Probably not for doubles players who are relying on this for their livelihood. Because they have to come up against people like Venus, Serena, and Andy in mixed doubles who are playing it for, like, a giggle. (laughs) But... But the, the... As much as as much fun as it is to watch Serena and Andy play, it's just so heartening to see the both of them healthy and fit on mm-hmm. a tennis court again. Seriously, I was trying to keep that in mind, and I didn't. I wouldn't even have minded if they lost that match, but it was just so heartwarming to see them both back and having fun. I know we've talked about Serena has been out here 
and it seems like kind of a slog for her. But back at Wimbledon... No, this is what you've been talking about. Well, I've about. been saying. All you've been talking about is <laughs> you want to see her happy on the court again. Right. And, and she looks happier on the court. It. Yeah. Supposedly her knee is not hurting her anymore. She's playing with someone who she respects very much and seems to like very much. And it, it's mutual. So now that she's enjoying herself, you can sit there and eat your food. Yes. For I at least relax. five minutes. Yeah. And it it's so interesting to see her and Andy interact because i don't know like the sport has brought them together right they they're not people who would know each other any other way but they have all these similarities the way that they carry themselves on court their temper their you know so much of their anger is both inward and outward the way they project it but andy clearly respects her so much and at at some points is in awe of her that she, you know, she hits some returns against Andreas Mies and you hear him say, wow, <laughs> during a point. She was, uh, it was a really encouraging performance by both of them. But I think Serena was probably the best player on court that day in their first match. She has progressed nicely in her singles. She uh, had a bit of a, a struggle, especially in that second set in her first round match. Ended up losing the first set in her second round match against Kaya Yuvan, mm-hmm. an up-and-comer who is very talented. And Serena was able to ride the ship in the second set and, and kind of sail smoothly toward the end of that match. And then had a, a solid win against Yulia Gerges in the third round in straight sets. Right. So I don't, I don't want to make any predictions going forward, but... Things are are looking up for Serena. Mm-hmm. I think she looks physically more fit than she has in a long time. She said, and Patrick said before the tournament, that she was pain-free. You didn't want to believe it. What we've seen on the actual court seems to support that. Mm-hmm. She gets Carlos Suarez Navarro next, and potentially Ash Bart in the quarterfinals. There was a bit of outrage over Serena, quote-unquote, not knowing that Barty was number one. Some... Australian outrage in the same newspaper that published that hideous racist cartoon last mm-hmm. September Sam Groth wrote a column about how Serena is disrespectful and it's just I <laughs> it was un- it was so manufactured it was it was wild it was I could not believe it like I didn't even want to pay it much attention because mm. it was so dim and disingenuous right. and mean-spirited and it was, it's the Fox News of tennis coverage, truly. It, it, it really is. It's, and it's fake news. Do you know Serena? Like, first of all, she doesn't pay attention to tennis. Right. Also, she lies constantly. So she, she may have actually known Ash was number one, but she didn't say so in press. It, no. But then she went on to say she's the sweetest girl. Her technique is impeccable. Everybody likes her. Like, it's impossible not to feel happy for Ash, but Sam Groth wrote a column about how she said she didn't know who was number one. Like, the idea that just because she didn't know who was number one was disrespectful to Ash, even though Serena went on to compliment her in the next breath. Like, I don't understand how that makes sense. And like you said, if you know anything about Serena Williams, you know, and also Venus, they do not pay attention to what's no, going on. Not at all. Like Serena is trying to fit in the Met Gala, 
and a royal wedding and all these things picking up awards within it's almost as if tennis is is fit into her professional schedule right and so she's not following the tour on a week-to-week basis and it's entirely believable the actual window between ash becoming number one and wimbledon is so small Mm-hmm. She yeah. did not play a tournament in between. She did not go into press. She wouldn't have been made aware of it by being in press. I, I don't know. It the, was where the respect factors in is that when Serena has to face Ash, which she has in the past, she knows what to expect. She comes prepared. She expects a tough match. Like that is respect in tennis, right? It's not about knowing who is number one right now, because as you said, they don't pay attention. Sam, I will say, like. To me, Sam Groth's obsession with Serena is is very disturbing. Mm-hmm. And it's I don't want to make it more than it is, but it actually scares me, and I would like to move on completely. I would like to bring up uh, this uh, little tidbit regarding when you went off on Simona Halep. <laughs> I feel like that is a mischaracterization. Mis- no, you went off, and I had, to, I had to rein you back in and check you a little bit uh-huh. when you said... When she said uh, that she was just having a chill year after her loss at Roland Garros. And you're like, come on, girl. Like, are you up here? Are you a tennis player? Like, what the fuck? Uh, I don't know if that's uh, verbatim what I said. <laughs> but I think you, you got the spirit. So she followed up in Wimbledon and she said, when I said it's a chill year, I didn't mean that. My English is not that great when I want to translate something from, from, from Romanian. I'm still working hard. I'm motivated. I want to win every match I play. But I want to be chill as a person more than last year. Very simple. Okay. Pretty much what I said. Mea culpa. Mm. And uh, that is a victory I, I will accept. Did you hear that? I said I was wrong. I, I heard you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to finish the episode, let's just briefly recap the matches, the matchups that are left. There are 16 matches left in the singles draw. Uh, obviously, the round of 16 is eight men's matches, eight women's matches. On the men's top half, Novak Djokovic plays Umber in the round of 16. Davy Goffin, uh, I go, uh, go and watch the last two points of his third round match. Some of the best stuff you'll see all year. Goffin plays Verdasco. Then Guido Pella plays Milos Raonic, who, I mean, like moth to a flame, like white to rice. Watch Milos I mean, Raonic on grass. Watch out. Milos may fly through his draw and then lose meekly to Novak, so... He could also be your finalist. <laughs> okay. Bautista Gut gets uh, a continued resurgent Benoit pair. Yeah. In the bottom half, oh boy, this is a whopper, a doozy, one that, uh, wow. Yeah. My oh. country, tis of the sweet land of liberty. Sam Query versus Dennis Sangren. <laughs> Wow, what a moment. What a moment. Nobody is watching that match. Oh, well, there are lots of people watching that match. You, you, where, what? Uh, <laughs> Nadal plays Souza, who took out Dan Evans yesterday. The The only reason I know about this match and that it even happened is that ESPN was showing Evans, Souza, instead of Serena and Andy Murray mixed doubles, which is wild. Because they wanted people, I think, to buy ESPN+. Plus. Nishikori plays Kukushkin, and Matteo Berrettini plays Roger Federer. Yeah, I think there's something there, actually. I do as well. Berrettini might be a bit tired from his five-set match against Diego Schwartzman, but he's he's young. He 
actually said in press that he feels he has the weapons to beat Roger Federer. Mm-hmm. He's big. He he plays like he's corn fed. He's got <laughs> he a is, huge serve. He's semolina fed. He's pasta fed. <laughs> uh, should it be a Federer Nishikori sem- uh, quarterfinal? Federer leads seven three in the head to head. Right now we're in course for another Fedal semifinal at a Slam. After the two played at the French Open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's still a lot of ifs there, but... Okay. Uh, Nadal, for his part, he looks good. I mean, Query yeah. could be a bother, frankly, yeah. with the big serve there's been on grass. S- there's been so much chatter about the speed of the surfaces yeah. here that, oh, it's like clay. And I feel like we hear that every year. And a lot of the players are very dramatic about it. And mm-hmm. I think... I believe it. Well, I think players are sometimes, ironically, not the best judge of the the quickness of a service Listen, if because you Stevens, hear no but you hear totally different stories from different players i see what i see on the tv i see 30 shot rallies which should not be happening sure. on grass i see the courts becoming brown on day two and three that but isn't i don't think no, that's unusual it is the the rapidity with which it's weathering mm. or wearing is not normal but chris everett said Regardless of the speed, the bounce is still very low. Sure. Which makes it quite different from clay. Yes. And there's also a misrepresentation about Nadal's chances that he doesn't like fast courts. And I don't think that's true. I think he likes a fast hard court. I don't think he likes a fast grass court. Oh, I oh, I think the opposite. Oh, you do? Yeah. Like, he, he's excelled on fast grass courts before. Okay. All right. I'm just saying this court is not fast. It's, if Sloane Stevens is out here saying, I love it, I love it, I love it, that should tell you something. <laughs> okay, maybe it's not Mark Philippus's fast. Oh my god. But, like, I grew up watching grass court tennis in the oh. 90s, okay? Like, this is not that. But but nobody wants that. If it were that fast, people would be complaining. A lot of people want that. But, no. Un- until randos win Wimbledon, and then they're going to complain. Mm. If Sam Querrey wins Wimbledon, do you there think has, everyone's going to be happy? There has to be some middle ground. Yes. Any predictions you want to make from that? I had before the no. tournament Federer over no. Felix in the final. So what do I know? <laughs> on the women's side, on that top half, Ash Barty plays Miss Grass Court, Alison Risk. Right. Who She beat Belinda Bencic. Serena plays Carlos Suarez Navarro. Streetseva plays Mertens, the player who is perpetually under the radar. And then the big boom boom fourth round match in the entire thing, for me, is Kanta against Kvitova. Yeah. Kanta taking out Sloane Stevens for the fourth consecutive time this year, on uh, three surfaces. God, that is just on hard courts in Brisbane, on clay at the French Open. Correct, I believe at the French Open, and then one of the masters, one of the the lead up events, and then now on grass at Wimbledon. And Sloane had her for a while. Through a set and a half, and Kanta mm. played flawless tennis the rest of the way to win. I mean, Joe Kanta's resurgence is real at it this is, point. Yeah, Kanta's going to be on center court against Kvitova. There were so many question marks about Petra before this tournament started, but she has made it through pretty uneventfully. But a lot of people are calling Kanta to win. Svitolina plays Martic, who is now having consistent results wherever she goes. Petra mm. Martic. You know, we talked about how she suffered that heartbreaking loss to Vondrasova at the French Open. And here she is in the round of 16 at the the following tournament on a different surface. One of my faves, Mohova, 
she uh, is in the fourth round to play Karolina Pliskova. Mm -hmm. Karolina, I am not inspirational Pliskova. No, she's not here to uh, to do anything but secure her mm -hmm. bag. I mean, was anyone really asking for inspiration? <laughs> <laughs> we should probably move on. <laughs> Simona Halep plays Coco Goff. No, uh, to my mind, I and uh, for the folks who are wrapped up in the story, for the folks who want to see that that Cinderella run go further, I kind of want it to end here because I don't want it to get too big. I know for I, her. I actually, you know, I think this is I a nice, cute way. spot for her to be competitive and lose. Keep your cash. Keep your mentions on socials and keep the pressure at a respectable level. Yeah, yeah. Let her develop her game on her own. And then Zhang plays Yastremska. Mm -hmm. Out of the bottom half, Pliskova, this is a golden opportunity for Pliskova to get to the final and possibly win the tournament. So I think that, really, at her level and the season she's had, anything less than the final is a disappointment. Keep in mind, Pliskova is somebody who had a lot of success at the lead-up tournaments to Wimbledon in years past. Yeah. Her game fits the surface, and she's she's been successful on the surface before. I honestly think the winner of this tournament comes from that very top section between Bardi and Serena. That's what I think All happens. Right. All right. On that note, thanks for listening. We're on Spotify now, as you yes. said before. I have finally started using Spotify, and I saw us. I you know I saw a tennis podcast, and I saw us in there. Oh, it was pretty cool. That's how it works. <laughs> I'm still figuring out how to use it, but find us on Spotify. It's not like they selected us to be part of Spotify. I right. submitted the we podcast got, to Spotify. We were nominated to Spotify. Um, <laughs> Apple Podcasts, iTunes, etc. All your podcast apps. We know there. we know that the, the audio quality of the last episode was a bit harsh on your ears in spots. We do, but you know, this is a DIY podcast where we've got we're juggling our full-time jobs. We're juggling and our lives. Or individual jobs that do not have the same schedule. Well, yeah, there's that's that, the thing. and we have to have a personal life, and it was it it was what it was. So we appreciate everyone who who did make it through mm -hmm. that episode and because who gave us constructive feedback. <laughs> Don't put that in the review, though. <laughs> My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at Tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is on Twitter at The Body Serve, as well as on Instagram. Hit us up with a review. Listen to us on Spotify. Enjoy week two of Wimbledon. Till next time. Thank you very much.